Now turn with me please in Revelation and chapter 19. Revelation <coughs> and chapter 19. We're continuing with this section of scripture from verses 1 down to verse 10, Revelation 19. And it is a, it's a magnificent section of scripture. And it's a magnificent section of scripture that's full of the glory of the Lord. And it's like that because it's giving us a little glimpse into some of the scenes of heaven, pictures of it. You can't look into heaven without seeing glory, for God and the Lamb dwell there. And glory is that fullness of light, the outshining brightness of the presence of God. So as you look at this picture that is being drawn for us in these verses from 1 in particular down to verse 10, what you're going to see is just feature after feature of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we gave you the picture. Remember, Revelation is a picture book. Pictures are being drawn. Get the picture in your mind's eye and you'll, you'll see the glory of the scene and you'll also very quickly learn the lessons that are meant to be conveyed by the very picture itself. Remember there's like the three movements, the, three, the four movements, but like the three choirs are here. It's like the grand finale of a magnificent oratorio. There's, there's the company up there in heaven and all their blessedness and they come first into the forefront and they, it scarcely died down before the angelic hosts, the four living creatures and the four and twenty elders, they move center stage, those that have been around the throne and as that loud outburst of hallelujahs dies down, so this ethereal sweetness of angelic voices join in and say, Amen. Hallelujah. I can't imagine the beauty of those heavenly voices. They would have been absolutely perfect as they spoke or sang. And as they bowed down to worship the God of the throne and the Lamb that's on it, they would have done it in beauty and absolute perfection. As though it were choreographed to perfection, their very movements. Because you see, they've been doing this for so long, bowing down in the presence of God and acknowledging his glory. That's their role as they guardians of the throne. There they are. And then those sweet voices have barely faded away. And a voice comes, the voice of the choir master as it were, and says, praise God. That means say hallelujah. All of you, great and small, ye servants of the Lord. And then it ends with this thunderous outburst where all the voices join together and it's the same thing. Hallelujah, the Lord God, omnipotent reigneth. And then the voices go on and continue to speak of the blessings for the believer. Now keep that in your mind. Paint it, if you like, as a picture, as we said. Take the throne and put it centre in the picture, but elevate it. All across the top of the picture, put face after face after face of the blessed redeemed who are in heaven. And then fill the entire picture. There's the throne, there's the multitudes on high. And around that throne you can place those four living creatures and the four and twenty elders, those angelic beings who are there. And then fill the rest of the picture from the bottom and up, as it were, with the multitudes of serve the Lord and are on the earth, if you like. 
And you've got a beautiful picture. And all the voices join together in the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there it is. It's beautiful. We are seeing strength. We are visualizing sweetness. And we are listening to a thunderous finale of the Hallelujah Chorus. This is heaven's rejoicing that justice and judgment has been done and that the Lord Jesus has been revealed and exalted and that blessing can now flow because evil has been dealt with. You see, blessing can't flow properly nor can it flow fully unless that which would hinder and restrain has been removed and it's been totally removed, completely removed. Sin is gone, finally, absolutely gone. Sin is ended. Sin's power is broken. The perpetrators of sin have been destroyed. The woman Babylon's gone. The very presence of sin has been removed. Now the Lord Jesus Christ can be seen. And that's coming out later in the chapter. He comes from heaven on that white horse in the fullness and the blaze of his glory to bring in judgment and justice and equity and to put sin down. He can be seen, he can be served, and he can be praised because there's nothing to hinder anymore. See the chapter. Blessing in its fullness can flow. The marriage supper of the Lamb can come. And we can experience the fullness of blessing and being united to our Lord Jesus Christ. And in heaven we'll sing a lot better. I am his and he is mine forever and forever. It's real, fellow Christian. It's true now. But in its fullness we'll enjoy it when face to face. Face to face without a cloud between. Nothing. Nothing to hinder. And justice will at last have been done. So there are the themes of the chapter there. The exaltation of Christ, the execution of judgment, and the fullness of blessing flowing for the people of God. It's a wonderful chapter. Let's read it. Let's read it. Verse 1, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven. They're saying, Alleluia, that means praise God. Why? Salvation and glory and honour and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great war which did corrupt the earth with her fornication. He's avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Hallelujah. And a smoke rose up forever and ever. There's the first movement. There's all those faces you've got in your picture in heaven and they're crying out, Alleluia. And in the background, there's just this pall of smoke going up. Pall of smoke going up. Evil will never rise again. It's been totally judged, totally destroyed, totally put down. Then, just as the voices die away, the four and twenty elders, the four beasts or the living creatures, they fall down and they worship God that sat on the throne. And they just say, Amen. Hallelujah. Then a voice comes out from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants. In other words, praise our God, that means say, Hallelujah, because that's what Hallelujah means. Praise God. Praise our God, all ye his servants. And ye that serve him, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, the voice of many waters, the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia. Can you hear the, can you get the sense of the, the roar of admonition, the agreement? 
Every heart's involved in this, and the sound is so mighty, it sounds like the voice of many waters. Now, it doesn't mean it is the same as the voice of many waters, because nothing can be the same as this response of worship. What the writer, what John is saying here is, the, uh, well, the best analogy I can get, it's, not, it's just like it, but it's not really it. It's, it's more than that. It's like many waters, mighty thunderings, saying, Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice, fellow Christians. Let us be glad and rejoice, for in that day we will be able to do it in its fullness. Give honor to him. And in that day we will enter into the fullness of the meaning of our blessing and our union with Christ. The marriage of the Lamb is come. His wife has made herself ready. To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. That's the righteousnesses of saints. The fine linen used for the adornment in that day. The adornment, I said, in that day is the righteousnesses, or if you like, more correctly, the righteous acts of the saints. He said to me, write. Blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. He said, see thou, do it not. I am thy fellow servant. I'm the servant of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. If you and I don't look at these pictures of prophecy and in looking at them be filled with a sense of the person and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ then we're not reading the Bible properly. There it is. Go back to that verse 1. <clears throat> Let's go through it just very, very gently, very succinctly and briefly so that you get it into your heart because it's a glorious section of scripture. What's happening here? In heaven there's a cry, Alleluia. Why are they going to say that? They say this is why. Salvation, glory, honour, power unto the Lord our God. Look back at the verse again salvation alleluia this is his work glory honor power alleluia this is his due unto the lord our god alleluia this is his person do you get that this is who the lord jesus christ really is he is God over all, blessed forever. The cry goes forth, praise God. Salvation, his work. Glory, honour and power, that is his due. The Lord our God, that is who he really, really is. We are here in the presence of that wonderful fact that God the Lord is delivering his people from the power and presence of sin and of Satan gone we are standing amazed in the presence of Jesus the crucified one but the crucified Christ is now crowned the rejected Jesus is now reigning he is taking his rightful place 
He was the Jesus of Nazareth, the lowly Galilean, the man in humility who came to seek and to save that which was lost. But now in his glory, the fullness of who he really was, the veiled glory, the glory that he veiled when he became a man, meek and lowly. He has taken and gathered it all up to himself. Glorious Jesus, the sinner's saviour, but this same Jesus, Christ and Lord, the crucified Christ, the crowned Christ, the rejected Christ, now the reigning Christ. What a picture. You've got to say, hallelujah, what a saviour. You've got to join in with the heavenly host. You couldn't keep quiet. Doesn't matter how much noise there already is. You join with the countless multitudes on high that tune their voice to Jesus' praise and all merit of their own deny and Jesus' worth alone proclaim. This is the glorious prospect that lies ahead of us and the very thought of it fills our hearts even now, even at this very present time. You see, what's going on here? It's really what the Lord Jesus taught in John chapter 5 and particularly there in verse 23 when he says this he says look the father judges no man he's given all judgment into the hands of the son well why would he what's the point of him saying that so that all men will honor the son even as they honor the father judgment is God's work it's God's strange work nobody has the right to judge except God himself No one takes final judgment to himself except Almighty God. God the Father who says, I have given that work, which is my divine work. It's God's only unique work. I've given it into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ because in that day, everyone will see who he really is. They are not spit on him again. No, no. They're not treating with contempt again. No, no. They'll not think he's just one of us again. They'll suddenly see this is God over all, blessed forever. And you'll end with that wonderful cry, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And verse 2 he says, True and righteous, here are the truths they're saying, are the judge, are his judgments. For he has judged the great war which did corrupt the earth with a fornication. He's avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And that's absolutely right that Babylon should be punished that there are consequences for sin, that justice must be done, that good must be rewarded, but evil must be punished just as much as good must be rewarded. And it is right that the blood of the martyrs should be avenged, and they will be in this coming and glorious day. And as they have slowed up there, as it were, and their voices have died away, verse 3, again they said, Alleluia, it came out stronger than ever. And in the background there's the symbol of permanent justice. And it was necessary that evil never be allowed again. Because if evil were to be allowed again, the whole scene of heaven would be disturbed. The rest of God would be interrupted. And it's never going to be interrupted again. The rest which has been prepared for us. When there's a freedom and a liberty from burden and sin and trouble, all of that completely removed. There is a rest remaining for the people of God, it says in Hebrews. And we're laboring now, wanting to enter into that rest. And God says, I'll see to it that it never gets disturbed by sin again. And that's the symbol of the smoke going up forever and forever. For it will never come to life again. It's done. Thank God. An evil society and an evil system, finally judged, 
finally judged. Done. That's the picture that we've got here. And God will rest with his people. And his people will rest with him. Verse 4. In come these ethereal beings. I can't grasp the perfection of movement, the perfection of music, the perfection of speech, the perfection of singing. But there they are, the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down. And they worshipped God that sat on the throne. They said, Amen. In other words, so be it. We totally agree. We have no objection. We're joining in. Alleluia. Praise be to God. And those beautiful voices, you feel them, you, you sense them just dying away for a moment and just as the silence falls and a sense of awe is on your own spirit as to what you've just seen a voice comes out of the throne and the voice is a voice of authority this is as it were the choir master and he's calling it's a command now praise our God say hallelujah O ye his servants and ye that fear him both small and great and then there's the response. I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, a great multitude of the redeemed. It's like the voice of many waters, the voice of mighty thunders. And it says, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. At last, as it were, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. What a day. What a scene. The final exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ but to actually be under the rule of justice equity and love can you conceive of that can you actually even get your head around the fact that there will be a world where it says a king shall reign in righteousness princes shall rule in judgment there will be complete equity there will be total righteousness and his banner over us will be endless love. And so you see the scene set. Because what we're going to go into now is that enjoyment of that endless love in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice. Well, you'll have to join the angels there for ourselves. We're going to have to say, Amen. 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 The marriage of the Lamb is come. His wife has made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Now, there's some lovely, lovely truths in verses 7 and verses 8. What we're looking at, and I won't go to that just yet, we're looking at the finality and the fullness of, our meaning, of the meaning of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking at. We are already united to him. You, you realize that I am his and he is mine forever and forever. Didn't we sing that? That means I belong to him and as it were, he belongs to me. Yes, but more than that, we are bound to him with everlasting ties. We have been brought and joined to him and he with us. We have become to share the same Holy Spirit who is the bond between us and him now in a union which is divine, a union which cannot be severed 
broken at all. This side of heaven we may lose our enjoyment of it as sin so often clouds us from the vision of his face. The beatific vision is clouded by the awfulness of our own behaviour and sin and the defilement of life. But in that day, but the bond's not broken, you see. It's been made in the blood of Christ. It's been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And we now live in the good of joined to the Lord and his being joined to us. This is actually one of the most comforting and encouraging truths for the present time in which we live. You know, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you know why he never will? Because, pardon me, but he never could. You see, he's joined himself to us in that contract, as it were, sealed with the blood and indeed established in the power of one of the divine persons of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit of God. So he says, I've come into you, I'm going to make my dwelling place with you. That's now. And the Holy Spirit, he that is joined to the Lord, is one spirit. The bond between us isn't resting on how I feel. It's not resting on even how I behave or what I am in myself or anything I do at all. The bond between us is divine. And it was sealed on the day of our redemption. But here is the picture of what that union will mean in its brightness and fullness when we actually see him face to face. Imagine that. You'll know even as also you are known. That is the glory and the joy and the beauty of what lies ahead for the believer. And you've got to live in the light of that world to come. Live in the light of the wondrous joy that lies ahead when we see him face to face. You live in the good of it now and you're enjoying the blessedness of it now. And you're living in the anticipation of the fullness of it in this day that's pictured here in Revelation and chapter 19. Now if you really want to get <clears throat> the best blessing out of understanding these two verses, you've got to understand a wedding <clears throat> in particular. You've got to understand the, the eastern picture of the eastern wedding. It's very similar to ours, but we've messed ours up long ago. All right? But there are three major periods in the eastern wedding. There was Firstly, there was a betrothal. right? Then there was a waiting period of time. And then there was the presentation, whereby the bride was presented to the groom, and the great wedding feast or the supper was celebrated, and the two were brought together. The betrothal, that was where it all started. You might say it's a bit like the engagement, all right? And then the wedding breakfast, the marriage, and then the celebrations. But it's more than that. The betrothal was the time when a contract was drawn up between the bride and the groom and the parents involved. That contract was very, very binding. Very binding. Well, you want to understand that? Very, very binding, you see. And if there was a dowry, the dowry was paid at that point in time. And the couple were looked at as belonging to one another. In order to break that contract, it was a big thing. Because like Mary and Joseph, you remember, Joseph, Mary, Joseph found Mary to be with child and he thought, I'll have to put her away. We say, well, why put her away? Um, why don't you just break the engagement and say, that's all, it's all over. No, 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 there was a, a legal process that <coughs> had to be gone through. Because Mary, the betrothed, was already regarded in that position of being bound to Joseph and Joseph being bound to her. And there was a distinct set contract that had to be undone. All right? So you've got the betrothal. 
Then you have the waiting time, that time in between. And in that time, the bride would make herself ready. She would bring and prepare herself so she could bring into the marriage the necessary skills. Got the idea? There's a waiting time, the the, uh, time of preparation. And then there comes the day of presentation. And on that wonderful day, the bride, suitably and beautifully adorned, would be taken to the very home of her bridegroom to be presented and to be received. All right? Then, of course, the great celebration, the marriage supper. Now get that picture in your mind. Get you, remember what I said about we're already united? Remember about the, the price that's being paid and so on. Right now we are betrothed, as it were. And that link between us and the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely binding. It's been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The price has been paid. It's been paid by precious blood. Acts 20 says, the church which he purchased with his own blood. You get it? It's all settled and sealed, you know. We're just waiting for the final realisation. Right now, we're in the waiting time. That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the fulfilment of what we already have. And in that waiting time, you know... There's got to be times in your spiritual experience where you can relate to this. There comes times when you are really are waiting to see the Lord. Have you been there? Hey, come on, you must have been there. When you will find yourself just longing to actually get to heaven and to enjoy its eternal joys. If you've never been there, you, you've got your roots down in the earth too much. You see, you're looking down at the earth and all around, start looking up. Why am I going and spending so much time on Revelation and trying to open up the pictures of heaven for you? So they will start to look up. And when that starts and grips you, you begin to find that there's just something that makes you cry out along with those martyrs. You know, oh, how long, oh Lord? How long will evil prosper? How long will all our hopes not be finalized and fulfilled? Oh, for the glory of full blessing that lies ahead. That's the point. That's the, what goes on in the waiting time, firstly. Because, you see, there is a fullness of existence that we can never enjoy this side of heaven. Did you know that? On your happiest days, on your richest times in life, remember there's more that lies ahead. Tis better on before. Always. Always. No matter how old you are and what you've seen of the past, what you've enjoyed of God's goodness, what you've enjoyed of the blessings of God amongst your family or your home or your spiritual life, it's better on before. One of the things always stayed in my mind, if I might just give you the story. I looked after a very dear man, Mr. Reg Vine, who was a missionary in Thailand for many, many years. And I looked after him till the day of his death, and I always remember going and sitting with him, and going to him on his fi- the final day of his life, in the night it was, and he was so weak and so laboured in his breathing, but he made a movement which indicated he wanted to say something to me. And here's a man, he's going to go to glory, you know, before the night's out. And I, I put my ear down right, right, right to his mouth, and I could just hear it, and he said it clearly in that soft whisper, "'Tis better on before, doctor. "'Tis better on before.'" Now, there's a man who died in faith. 
Yeah, he saw the gleam of the eternal city from afar. And through his weakness in those final hours, it was a word, there was one standing at the portal waiting to welcome him home. Fellow Christians, that's what it's going to be like in a day to come in all its fullness. And when you get there to that presentation in the wedding, the wedding is the realisation. And in that realisation that you have, um, it brings that gladness and rejoicing because you see what's happened is all your hopes have been fulfilled. All, your, all the promises of God have been kept. This represents a picture of the end of all waiting. And this is what it's going to be like when we actually meet him and we see him face to face. You say, well, that'll be lovely. Couldn't wish for any more than that. I tell you what, there's more to come. (laughs) You don't sit at a wedding breakfast forever, do you? I mean to say, you move out from that and you see the day when the, the bride and groom depart and we bid them all farewell as they go off into a new life and to enjoy each other forever. This side of heaven. Well, look at the picture of this. This is just the picture of the church as a bride in the wondrous joy of meeting all the desert paths. Oh, what wondrous words of greeting. He shall speak at last. He and I in that bright glory, one deep joy shall share. His, mine to be forever with him, but his that I am there. It'll be a tremendous day to see him face to face. To join in the company and the throng of the redeemed. And to sing like we've never sung before. Hallelujah. But there's more to come. You see that? There's more to come. That's why the the church is just seen as the bride. And that's to do with the meeting and the love and the greeting. But then it's seen as a city. That's the dwelling place. That's where you live forever with it. So we're brought into the beauty of being a bride. Presented and loved. And we're brought into the joy of a city in which we live, where there is unending joys in the presence of God, unhindered by the presence of sin. And there's not a ripple on the pond, not a ripple. No death, no crying, no tears. Only the glory of the Lord and the love of God and the fullness of life entered into and enjoyed with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, evil will have been gone. That's the picture we're getting. Evil men with the mark of the beast. Where are they? They've been destroyed. In the evil society, Babylon, what's happened to her? She's gone. Smoke's still burning. Evil powers, the beast and the false prophets, they're done away with and destroyed. And the very origin of evil itself we're coming into now in the next chapter when Satan himself is cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. And we're going to be dwelling in the perfection of holiness... We're going to be dwelling in the fullness of our redemption. We're going to be dwelling in the full beauty of united union with our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll be dwelling in the city of gold, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. Chapter 19, we're getting the celebration of our union with Christ. And in chapter 20. 21 more, we're getting the realisation of what that actually means. We'll be doing that as we move through. Now, more than that. Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice. Give honour to him. We wouldn't be there if he'd never chosen us, you know. Imagine that, eh? We wouldn't be there if he'd never chosen us. We would never be there if he hadn't paid the price for us. All honour to him. The marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife 
has made herself ready. Did you get that? She's prepared herself for this wondrous day of meeting, the celebration of actually being joined to him in its fullness. This waiting time in which we are longing, this waiting time in which we are yearning for that fullness of joy in the presence of God, this waiting time is the time when we, who are destined to be joined to the Lord Jesus and by his side forever, when we are making ourselves ready. That's a real challenge. His wife has made herself ready. And it says here, to her it was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. We're not dealing now with righteousness for our acceptance before God and by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's been dealt with. That righteousness is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ which has been put to our account, imputed to us, so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see any of me and my as, and me as a sinner, he only sees the perfect beauty and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he accepts me as clearly and unhesitatingly as he would accept his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, I have been put into him, united with him, And what he is, is now mine. That is for my acceptance, righteousness. This is righteousness for our adornment when we meet the Lord. Do you realise that? That right now, we are weaving in time the garment that we will wear in eternity. That's the teaching of this here. On the day of presentation, she arrays herself with the garment of righteousness, the linen, the righteous acts. You say, well, this is a bit strange. What are you driving at? I'm driving at this. Right now in the waiting time is the time of our sanctification. You get that? It's a time when you and I are learning to keep looking at the glory of the Lord so that we get changed, you see? Our characters are changed. We're not the same person that we were before we got saved. We're not the same person that we were five years ago. I can look at you and I can say, ah, there's more of the Lord Jesus in that person, that that believer, that Christian, than there was five years ago. See how the character's been moulded and been changed. There's a change in behaviour. You start to love doing right and love pleasing God. The whole bent and attitude of your thinking is in that kind of direction. And we are being sanctified. We are being made holy. We are being transformed from what we were into what we will ultimately be. And the process going on now is what we are now. And it's a growing, changing process because we're already joined to him in a bond that is living and giving us life and transformation And we are being changed from one degree of glory into the other. And what character that's been formed in us on earth will be used in the day to come, in the final day of presentation to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You say, this is sounding a bit wonky. It's not wonky. Keep listening. It's very serious. Because in our sanctification, we are being adjusted 
We are being made holy in our character and behavior. It'll never reach perfection till by and by, but the process is going on and the growth is happening and there is discipline. Oh yeah, you go through hard times, things aren't working out. You're worried, you're meant to be. There's discipline in this. God's teaching you something, wanting to change your character, your attitude, your outlook, your aims, your ambitions. Maybe he just wants you to get more dependent on him. To work out the things in life that really matter. And it can hurt. Discipline hurts sometimes. But it's always for good. Because there's adjustment. There is transformation. From one degree of glory to another. And I say it again. Our life is but a weaving between my Lord and I. That's what it is. And in each dark moment or bright moment. In each blessing or in each struggle. There comes God intends to bring out of it something that's righteous that's in keeping with his own character now formed in you so you are changing as a person into being something that pleases the Lord more beautifully and more perfectly than it did say 12 months ago and the final act will be in the day of presentation so what are you going to do? you live a careless life see that? you live an unhallowed life no you neglect the things that really matter no but it's so easy because life crowds in on us today you know just the demands of living are monstrous are you going to fail to put off the old man are you going to fail to put on the new man no Are you actually going to fail to look at the glory of the Lord and be transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another? One thing I do, and I've done it, I must confess, very, very imperfectly, but it has nevertheless ever been my intention in teaching the word of God to exalt the glory of the Lord and to teach on the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, yes, that's nice, Do you not realise that if I do that and I get you looking at him, he will change you? You know, preachers and churches and counsellors, we all get muddled up in the idea that we could change people. Yes, we'll have a how-to sort of book, you know. How to cope with grief. Yes, yes. How to cope with disappointment. How to cope with, how to, how to fix, how to, one, two, three, four. And by the time, there's so many books written on this, you know. It drives you crazy. Ah. I tell you what, you look at the Lord and he'll teach you. He will transform you. He will take a place in your heart that makes the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This is real. This is the true Christian life. This is the life of joy unspeakable and full of glory. This gives you victory over the world, even our faith. That by which, through which, we receive all the fullness of the blessings of God. Fellow Christian, face this fact. If we fail in these areas, there will be a deficit in our final character and in that final garment to be worn on high for our adornment. You say, wait a minute, does scripture back all this up? Yeah, it does. You think, first of all, of the teaching of the talents. You remember the talents? The master leaves and he gives to his servants talents. One gets five talents, one gets two talents, one gets one talent, right? 
He comes back, and the man with the five talents says, Lord, I've made five more talents. Oh, he says, well done, you good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. man that had two talents, he had two talents. Oh, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Everyone, the Lord has different tasks and different capacities for all of us. But the truth is, we have used what we've been given and we've made it into more. And it has been because of our entire attitude of faithfulness and service, realizing that the master's going to return. And then the one who had one and who did absolutely nothing with it, he is the one, he doesn't say enter thou into the joy of thy Lord, he's actually cast out completely and finished. We cannot be given responsibility in heaven when we have failed in our responsibility on earth. These are hard words, they're searching words, but by God's grace they'll bring us to a desire to know him better, serve him better, to leave the things of earth and unholiness and unrighteousness and ungodliness in their place. And to fix your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and of his grace. You see, our faithfulness in taking up the cross daily, in putting off the old and putting on the new, that is the thing that qualifies us for our life lived in heaven above. 1 John 2 brings this out very plainly, the same truths. In 1 John chapter 2, and I think it's verse 28. Yeah, 27. It is 27. No, 28. Here's the exhortation. And now, little children, abide in him. Stay close. Live in him. Loving, keeping his commandments. Now, little children, abide in him. That, so that, when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. See that? Ashamed before him at his coming. We're talking about Christians here. That's what we're talking about. Have you ever thought about shame in the Bible? What, what shame? What, where does the first idea of shame in the Bible comes in? Where does it come in? Adam and Eve. Because they weren't clothed. See that? That's the picture you've got here. The coming is, is it finally to meet him. You're just missing something that should have been there. You know, your, your clothing could have been better. He says, so you use diligence. You use, use diligence to stay close, abide in him that you won't be ashamed before him at his coming. Now look at verse 29, because this actually substantiates this. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that does righteousness is born of him. Why would he suddenly be talking about righteousness there, straight after he's talking about being ashamed before him at his coming? We've just read about the garment that we wear, the righteous acts of the saints. He says, just remember the God you're going to meet is a righteous God. The God you're going to meet will indeed reward and rejoice in the fact that some of that righteousness has been reproduced in the life that you have lived from the day he ever saved you and made you a new creature in Christ Jesus and put you in the world to be the light and to be the salt and to be the witness and to point the way everywhere you go and everything you do. It's beautiful, isn't it? 
Challenging, but beautiful. There's a garment that must be worn at the wedding feast. Actually, and we'll do this later, it's the, it's the meaning of the man without a wedding feast in the parable of Matthew 22 that came along, remember, to the, to the marriage feast, and they were all there, but there was someone in there without a wedding garment on. And the master, the lord of the house says, how did you get in here without that wedding garment on? Eh? He says he invited everybody, the rich and the poor, the small and the great, the good and the bad. The good and the bad. I'm glad he invited the bad, or he never would have invited me. <laughs> Praise God for that. But when he, when he called me by his grace, when, he could, when I heard his voice of the messenger going out into the highways and the byways and saying, you know, the feast is ready, come. I came bad as I was, but he made me a new creature in Christ. And since then I've sought by his grace and all of us in our weakness and failure nonetheless wanted to live a life that pleased him. In other words, we were weaving the wedding garment but here's this man and he was bad and he came just as bad as he was. Oh yeah, and he came because he was going to come and he joined himself to the group and uh, he thought he'd pass muster but there was no righteous act, you see. If you say you're saved and you can't live a righteous life, there's something wrong with your salvation. A person who is saved will always live a changed life. I don't mean we won't stumble, we won't fail, we won't fall. We won't be going back for the forgiveness of God as it were all over again, being washed. You know, the blood of Jesus Christ, God, his son cleanses us from all sin and we can faithfully confess our sins. And he's faithfully and just and he is just to forgive us our sins. But there is something in the life of a person that's a true Christian whereby they want what is right. With all their weakness, they may struggle, but with the Lord's help as they abide in him, they seek to do what is right. And when we arrive at the final day, we will have something of a wedding garment to wear. That is the challenge, and it is a challenge. It's a terrific challenge. Of what's being taught here, the fine linen is the righteousness, or the righteous acts of the saints. That is not be ashamed before him at his coming. But let there be that cry of rejoicing, that sense of relief, a longing that's been answered, a blessing to be that you've thought about, you've imagined, you've read about, you've enjoyed, but to be entered into in its fullness. When who is he who is the Lord God omnipotent? will take us into the blessings, fullness of blessings of his kingdom. And he's going to share not just a coin out of a fish's mouth. He's going to share with us all the riches that are his. He's the heir. And the Bible says we're joint heirs with our Lord Jesus Christ. Say it again. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Amen. So, Lord, in thy mercy, part us, we pray, with thy blessing. Whatever we've thought, whatever we've said, can only be but a poor understanding of the fullness of joy and glory. In thy presence is fullness of joy. And in thy presence are blessings forevermore. Keep us in the good of it, we pray. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit 
be our blessed portion in these days that lie ahead until our Lord shall come as we part with a sense of peace in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.